Prefaces and Introduction of the Philosophy of the Plan of Salvation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Philosophy of the Plan of Salvation by James Barr Walker. Publisher's Advertisement to the New and Enlarged Edition. It is now more than twelve years since this work was first published. From the outset it met with a degree of public favor which the lapse of time has served only to confirm and extend. Year by year the sale has been large, constant, and increasing, and already twenty thousand copies have been disposed of in this country alone. Besides this general popularity, it has attained the rare distinction of being adopted as a textbook in some of our higher seminaries of learning. Seldom, indeed, has a treatise written only for the public at large been exalted to that peculiar preeminence. In Europe its success has been even more signal, if possible, than in this country. It has been honoured with a place as a textbook in the theological seminaries of the Free Church of Scotland, and in other literary institutions abroad. It has been translated into the Welsh, French, German, and Italian languages in Europe, and is now being translated into Hindustani in Asia, thus achieving a position in the literature of Christendom which perhaps no other American work upon theological subjects has gained. All this it has accomplished without a name and without vouchers, except those given voluntarily by reviewers and by readers interested in the work. A new and greatly improved edition is now offered to the public. The distinguishing feature of this edition is the addition of a supplementary chapter. The original work was designed to meet the form of error prevalent at the period of its publication, but in the interval of years that has elapsed since, the form of error has somewhat changed. The necessity of a book revelation is now denied. Infidels, disguised in the garb of Christian ministers, have stolen into the pulpit, and with much show of philosophy, have taught the people that man needs no revelation from without, inasmuch as the light within himself is all-sufficient for his guidance. The Bible is thus set at naught, and deprived of its divine authority. It is this last form of infidelity which the new chapter is designed to meet. By a strictly philosophical method, the author undertakes to demonstrate the necessity of a written revelation. His line of argument is entirely original, and while it lends to the same general conclusion, differs essentially from that so ingeniously developed in the Eclipse of Faith. It will thus be perceived that the contents of this chapter make a distinct and important addition to the book. For young men who are in danger of being misled by the sophistries of the new infidelity, it will prove highly salutary, and for that reason it is adapted to awaken fresh interest in those whose beneficence has heretofore been enlisted in promoting the circulation of the book. Preface to the First Edition This book is anonymous. With the exception of a few gentlemen, who kindly assisted in revising the sheets and reviewing the authorities and notes, it is not probable that any individual out of the writer's family will be able to conjecture, with the least degree of probability, who is the author of the book. Even the personal friends of the author would not be likely to suspect him of writing this volume. The book will, therefore, stand upon its own merits before the public, 
and the author will be indulged in making some expressions which a becoming degree of modesty would forbid, were his name upon the title-page. Occasion of the Work During some of the first years of the writer's active life he was a skeptic. He had a friend who has since been well known as a lawyer and a legislator, who was also skeptical in his opinions. We were both conversant with the common evidences of Christianity. None of them convinced our minds of the divine origin of the Christian religion, although we both thought ourselves willing to be convinced by sufficient evidence. Circumstances which need not be named led the writer to examine the Bible, and to search for other evidence than that which had been commended to his attention by a much-esteemed clerical friend who presided in one of our colleges. The result of the examination was a thorough conviction in the author's mind of the truth and divine authority of Christianity. He supposed at that time that in his inquiries he had adopted the only true method to settle the question, in the minds of all intelligent inquirers, in relation to the divine origin of the Christian religion. Subsequent reflection has confirmed this opinion. Convinced himself of the divine origin of the religion of the Bible, the author commenced a series of letters to convey to his friend the evidence which had satisfied his own mind beyond the possibility of doubt. The correspondence was, by the pressure of business engagements, interrupted. The investigation was continued, however, when leisure would permit, for a number of years. The results of this investigation are contained in the following chapters. The epistolary form in which a portion of the book was first written will account for some repetition, and some varieties in the style, which otherwise might not have been introduced. Reasons for Presenting the Work to the Public Bookmaking is not the author's profession, but after examining his own private library, and one of the best public libraries in the country, he could find no treatise in which the course of reasoning was pursued which will be found in the following pages. Dr. Chalmers, in closing his Bridgewater Treatise, seems to have had an apprehension of the plan and importance of such an argument, and had he devoted himself to the development of the argument suggested, the effort would have been worth more to the world than all the Bridgewater Treatises put together, including his own work. Coleridge has somewhere said that the Levitical economy is an enigma yet to be solved. To thousands of intelligent minds, it is not only an enigma, but it is an absolute barrier to their belief in the divine origin of the Bible. The solution of the enigma was the clue which aided the writer to escape from the labyrinth of doubt. And now, standing upon the rock of unshaken faith, he offers the clue that guided him to others. A work of this kind is called for by the spirit of the age. Although the signs of the times are said to be propitious, yet there are constant developments of undisciplined and unsanctified mind, both in Europe and America, which furnishes matter of regret to the philanthropist and the Christian. A struggle has commenced, is going on at present, and the heat of the contest is constantly increasing, in which the vital interests of man, temporal and spiritual, are involved. In relation to man's spiritual interests, the central point of controversy is the cross of Christ. In New England, some of those who have diverged from the doctrine of the fathers have wandered into a wildness of speculation, which, if it were not for the evil experienced by themselves and others, 
ought perhaps to be pitied as the erratic aberrations of an unsettled reason rather than blamed as the manifestation of minds determinately wicked the most painful indication connected with this subject is that these guilty dreamers are not waked from their reveries by the rebuke of men whose positions and relations in society demand it at their hands the west likewise is overrun by sects whose teachers under the name of reformers or some other inviting appellation are using every effort to seduce men from the spiritual doctrines and duties of the gospel or to organize them into absolute hostility against christ these men are not wanting in intellect nor in acquired knowledge and their labors have prejudiced the minds of great numbers against the spiritual truths of the gospel and rendered their hearts callous to religious influence these facts in the author's opinion render such a volume as he has endeavored to write necessary in order to meet the exigencies of the times author's preface to the second edition the increasing demand for the philosophy of the plan of salvation and the general and very favorable notices which it received from the secular and religious presses of the country as well as from distinguished individuals has produced in the mind of the author the desire to make some additions to the volume, with the hope of rendering it more worthy of the favor with which the first edition was received. A second edition, however, being called for so soon, and the copyright being transferred to a publisher who desires to stereotype the work immediately, leisure has not been obtained to make the designed additions, and furthermore it has been doubted whether any enlargement of the volume at the present time would add much to its value or its circulation it was issued therefore in its original form with only a few verbal emendations it is a fact grateful to the feelings of the author and one which perhaps ought to be mentioned that copies of the first edition were put in the hands of several intelligent skeptics in all but a single case the individuals expressed a favorable change in their views either in relation to the truth and authority of the dispensations proper of moses and christ or of the exclusive adaptedness of the christian dispensation to meet all the spiritual wants of men in the reviews of the book the final conclusion derived synthetically by combining the results produced by an analysis of the different propositions examined is not noticed so fully as some other features of the work the book is a series of independent demonstrations the results of which accumulate to the final conclusion that the christian religion is necessarily the only religion possible to meet the spiritual wants of mankind in arriving at this conclusion the different parts and processes of revealed religion are examined and their adaptedness to perform their several functions in elevating purifying and actuating the human soul to benevolent effort is determined and finally the practical operation of the system is shown as a matter of undeniable experience to produce the complete and necessary result required by this method the conclusion is brought out with a degree of accuracy approaching if it does not reach mathematical demonstration that the truths and manifestations of the christian religion are adapted to carry forward man's mental powers to their ultimate development that the power applied fills the capacity of the human soul as four is contained in twelve three times and as twelve is the only number in which four is three times contained 
so the capacities and susceptibilities of the human soul being given, and the power and adaptations of revelation being ascertained, the result is obtained, may it not be said with mathematical certainty, that Christianity, as taught by the interpretation and experience of evangelical Christians, is the true religion, and the only religion possible for human nature. INTRODUCTION we ask not that a man should come to the investigation of the evidences of the Christian revelation with a prejudgment in its favor. We ask only that there be no prejudice in the soul against it. It is only when a man looks through a glass which is perfectly clear and pure that he sees things as they are. If the glass be in the least degree distorted or discolored, every object seen through it will necessarily partake of the distortion and discoloration. So our Saviour teaches us, Matthew 5.22 and 23. This is said expressly in regard to the blinding power of avarice in perverting the religious judgments, compare verses 19 and 20, and the same is true of every other forbidden state of mind and affection. When there is no mental or moral preoccupation averse to the Christian system, the surprising adaptations of this system to meet and relieve the wants and sorrows of man constitute a species of evidence which is real and most convincing. Some traits, which on a superficial view seemed unfavorable, on closer scrutiny are found to be among the strongest links in the chain of demonstration. Again, the mind may be in such a state that the clearest evidence of this kind will produce upon it no effect whatever. There is a voluntary and perfect unsusceptibility to any impression from it. The idea which I wish to convey can probably be best illustrated by an example. We will suppose a shipwreck in which every soul perishes except two passengers, whom we will name Benignus and Contumax. With nothing saved but their lives, they are cast upon the rocky shore of a desert island, where there is no prospect to cheer the eye, and neither vegetable nor animal nor human habitation to give them hope of aid or sustenance. The first emotions of Benignus, after struggling through the waves, are admiring gratitude to God for giving him his life, and a cheerful confidence that he who aided him thus far will not then leave him to perish. The first emotions of Contumax are murmuring regret that he has lost his voyage and lost his money, and is thrown upon a desolate coast with no immediate prospect of getting away. He wonders why such ill luck should always happen to him. He is indignant that he was ever such a fool as to trust himself to the sea. He wonders he could not have had sense enough to remain at home. Presently Benignus discovers in the rock, far above the reach of the waves, a spacious cavern, the entrance to which is protected by an artificial wall, and its sides pierced, evidently by a human hand, for the admission of light and air. Benignus is delighted. He immediately concludes that some benevolent individuals, or some paternal government, had provided this shelter on purpose for unfortunate mariners who might be shipwrecked on the inhospitable shore. Contumax scorns any such inference. He cannot see why benevolent people should wish to drive poor shipwrecked wretches into such a dismal hole in the rock, instead of providing them with a comfortable and pleasant home. Benignus reminds him that a house with windows and doors could not endure the storms of such a coast, and as no one would live there to take care of it, 
it would be continually out of repair, and far less comfortable than the cavern, and therefore the very nature of the shelter provided should be regarded as a striking proof not only of the benevolence, but also of the wisdom of the provider. But Contumax is thinking of a handsome house in a green yard, filled with the shrubbery of a fine climate, and cannot see a particle of either wisdom or benevolence in the rocky grotto. He, however, avails himself of the shelter for want of a better. Benignus soon finds, carefully stored away beyond the reach of damp, a tinder-box with all the necessary furnishing, and a quantity of dry fuel for making a fire. "'See,' says he joyfully to his companion, "'another proof of the benevolent care of the provider of the cavern. Here are all the materials for making a quick fire, of which we are so much in need.' "'How do you know,' replies Contumax, "'that these things came here in that way? They probably belong to some poor wretch who has been shipwrecked before us, and found a chance to get away again, as I wish from my heart I could do.' Benignus thinks that the great care with which they were put away out of reach of injury is a sufficient indication that they were not left by one joyously hastening away, intent only on his own selfish interest, but must have been deposited there by some benevolent hand, for the express purpose of relieving the suffering, but Contumax cherishes no such romantic ideas. Benignus, greatly delighted with what he has already discovered, makes further search in the cave, and finds plain and wholesome provisions, such as would not soon be injured, together with medicines and cordials, and also a supply of coarse but clean and warm clothing, carefully cased up so as to preserve them from all injury of wet or moth. Now, says Benignus to his companion, you certainly will be convinced that this place was provided by some benevolent hand, on purpose for the shipwrecked. Here is evidence which cannot be gainsaid. We have more reason to apprehend, growls Contumax, that we have fallen upon the haunts of pirates, who are now absent on their depredations, but will soon return to murder us. Nay, replies Benignus, these are not the spoils of pirates, here are neither jewels nor silks, there is no gold or silver, here are neither costly viands, nor rich wines, nor intoxicating orandies, and besides the things are laid away with much more care and scrupulous nicety than suits the wasteful and licentious habits of pirates. Well, at any rate, replies Contumax, the donor must be a vulgar, stingy fellow to put us off with such coarse food and raiment. But do you not consider, says Benignus, that these things must not be so costly as to tempt cupidity, since they cannot be kept under lock and key, and besides they are healthful and comfortable, and far better adapted to the condition of those most likely to need them than if they had been of fine material, for twenty sailors suffer shipwreck where one gentleman is subject to such a misfortune. The only reply which Contumax has to this is, to keep the thought well up in his own mind, I am a gentleman and not a sailor. Contumax, however, does not hesitate to warm himself by the fire which Benignus has made of the materials found in the cave. He partakes largely and with great zest of the provisions and cordials, simple as they are, gladly lays aside his own wet and torn clothing for the coarse but comfortable and dry raiment provided for him, and fixing himself in the most easy position he can devise, 
and as near to the various comforts of the grotto as he can get, he is quite ready to enter upon an argument to any extent. He is a great reasoner, Contumax is. He can prove most philosophically that Benignus cannot prove that there was any benevolent intention at all in anybody in providing and furnishing that cavern. He can prove to a dead certainty that, for all which can be proved to the contrary, it might have been a mere accident, a blunder, a selfish enterprise, that nobody knows anything about it, and he can account for it in twenty ways, without the least supposition of wisdom or benevolence, or anything of the kind. The only thing he is certain of is, that he is in a miserable place. He thinks somebody is greatly to blame for putting him there, and is under decided obligation to get him safely away again. What kind of reasoning can you apply to such a mind? What sort of evidence can such a man perceive or appreciate? What can he see in a pure light while his eyes are suffused with jaundice? This character represents, and not unfairly, by far the largest class of skeptics which exist in Christian lands. There is in them all a tinge of disaffection, of misanthropy, or rather of theomazy, if we may be allowed to coin a word, to express an idea which is often a reality, but which in our proper English tongue as yet has no name. This gives a dark shade to all their views of evidence, and prevents their seeing any decided proof in trains of reasoning which, in other states of mind, would have all the force of absolute demonstration. The man who has long held raw brandy in his mouth cannot immediately distinguish the taste of delicate wines, and he who has accustomed his soul to the unfeeling roughness of a godless style of thought, loses the delicacy of moral perception, which to the experienced Christian is the very organ by which he receives and appropriates evidence on moral and religious subjects. All reflecting men, when they seriously contemplate their moral condition in this world, feel very much like shipwrecked sailors. In regard to this single point there is very little difference between the believer and the unbeliever, between Benignus and Contumax but there is a great difference in their feelings in reference to their condition after it has been surveyed. The believer feels that he yet has much to thank God for. He feels real gratitude that his position is not still worse than it proves to be. The unbeliever, on the other hand, quote, when he knows God, glorifies him not as God, neither is he thankful, end quote. and as a necessary consequence, he, quote, becomes vain in his imagination, and his foolish heart is darkened. End quote. He feels under no particular obligation to God. On the contrary, he rather thinks that God is under decided obligation to him, to treat him very well, and bring him easily and safely through the bad place into which he has thrown him. In this state of mind, he looks upon the divine arrangements actually made for his spiritual good, and almost as a matter of course he is dissatisfied such being the different state of mind of the two classes of persons, the facts of the Christian revelation, although substantially the same as they present themselves to both, yet produce very diverse and even opposite effects, to the believer establishing his faith, to the unbeliever confirming his skepticism, quote, to the one a savour of life unto life, to the other a savour of death unto death, end quote. 
Meanwhile, the most scornful unbeliever quietly avails himself of all the incidental advantages which the Christian system brings, makes himself very comfortable with all the social improvements which it originates, and employs the mental culture which he himself owes to it, in strenuous exertions to disprove its intelligent and benevolent origin. We will endeavour to show, in a few particulars, the different effects which the same aspects of religion produce on the two different classes of mind under consideration. To both, revelation presents itself as, in the main, very plain and homely in its garb. To the unbeliever this is offensive, unworthy of God. He would have something more, in accordance with the ambitious style of the little greatness of this world, for he has never learned that, quote, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. End quote. The believer understands that the greater part of God's children, for whom revelation is designed, are plain and homely people, that their souls are as precious as the souls of the proud and mighty, and in eternity may be altogether more elevated. And he knows if one cannot perceive the real dignity and refinement of Scripture, it must be because his ideas of dignity and refinement are factitious and not natural. Both the believer and the unbeliever see things in the Bible that are severe and rough. The destruction of Sodom, the stoning of the Sabbath-breaker, the extirpation of the Canaanites, are matters of fact in the eyes of both. But in this atmosphere the philosophic infidel feels as uncomfortably as Contumax in the cave. The believer, however, reflects that since God does not choose to purify men by physical omnipotence, but by moral means and influences only, he must of course address each age by means adapted to the condition of each, and rough generations must be met with severe measures. Just as Benignus sees that a cavern with loopholes and guard-walls, instead of a house with doors and windows, is admirably fitted to a desolate and stormy coast. Both understand that the vicious, the indolent, and the careless cannot attain to correct views of revealed truth, for the truth is so revealed that labor, effort, care, and even energetic strugglings are essential to the acquisition of religious knowledge in its purity. To the unbeliever this is all distasteful. He feels as if God were under obligations to make the way of salvation such that men would walk in it as a matter of course, without either effort or thought of their own, that all the means of salvation should not only be such that they can be used, but such that they cannot be abused, that men should not only be able to find the way of life, but absolutely unable to lose it. The believer perceives at once the total unreasonableness of these demands, and their entire inconsistency with all the arrangements of nature. It would be as easy for God to cover the earth with railroads as with mountains, with canals as with rivers, to cause houses, all finished and furnished, to spring out of the ground as well as trees, and make the wheat-stalk bear a well-baked loaf of bread just as easily as the grain of wheat, and thus save men all the hard labor of toilsome travelling, of digging and building, of ploughing and planting, of harvesting and grinding and baking. But has God done this? And what would man be good for if he had? So in religion, what would a free agent be who had nothing to do? In all nature, that which can be used is susceptible also of abuse. That which can do good can be perverted also to evil. 
why does not the infidel require as proof of the wisdom and goodness of the god of nature a kind of water that can quench his thirst and clean his skin and float his ships but which will never on any occasion drown anybody or make an inundation a kind of rain that will refresh his grass but never wet his hay a kind of axe that will cut wood but never penetrate the flesh of the woodcutter a kind of fire that will cook his food and warm him when he is cold but can never burn him or reduce his dwelling to ashes these demands are all quite as reasonable as those which the infidel makes as conditions of his ideal revelation and the objections which are urged with so much confidence against the bible and gain so easy a reception among men proceed on a principle which would be scouted and scorned by all the world as unspeakably ridiculous if applied to nature the believer recognizes the god of the bible and the god of nature as the same and when he sees the same kind of analogies running through both it confirms his faith instead of shaking it these illustrations might be pursued to almost any extent at least till they had made a book much larger than the unpretending little volume which they are designed to introduce to the reader having known something of this work from its inception to its completion having witnessed with pleasure its remarkable success with the public being confident that its influence must be good and only good in these times when philosophical scepticism and superstitious credulity are equally abundant and equally mischievous i would gladly do whatever may be in my power to increase its circulation the argument itself if not entirely original is developed with a care a consistency and a thoroughness which can nowhere else be found certainly in the same compass and the whole style of thought from beginning to end shows it to be the author's own work and not a thing which he has borrowed from others such books add just so much to our stock of real intellectual wealth they are like introducing into a community the gold and silver coins in full weight instead of setting up a new bank on paper capital and issuing paper the argument will always be entirely satisfactory to benignus and though contumax may still continue to cavil every one will see that cavilling and refuting are two very different matters c e stowe walnut hills cincinnati ohio may twenty second eighteen forty five end of prefaces and introduction